Something in the mist Damn. took John Lee! And catch your breath. Something in the mist took John Lee, and I, I could hear him screaming. Welcome to Now Playing's review of The Mist. End time has come, not in flames, but in mist. Part of the Stephen King movie retrospective series. Sure, there's no way I can talk you out of this. Hosted by Arnie. No, you're scared, man. I'm scared too. Stuart. The fiends of hell, you see, they are let loose. And Jacob. Put more than two of us in a room, we pick sides and start dreaming up reasons to kill one another. This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Welcome to Sesame Street. Listener discretion is advised. Ready, kid? Let's rock. Today we're discussing The Mist, starring Thomas Jane, Marsha Gay Harden, Lori Holden, Andre Brower, Toby Jones, Sam Witwer. He's the voice of Darth Maul in Solo, and here he is here. Directed by Frank Darabont. This is your very own Jim Jones, now playing co-host, Arnie. And Stuart. This is Jacob, and if you ever need a friend like me, just squat and shit one out. (laughs) Before we get too deep into this, I just want to break my arm patting ourselves on the back. Welcome, listeners, to our 900th movie review. Wow. Holy Toledo. (laughs) And that's not even counting the interviews or anything else. This is just the 900th review in Now Playing History. We are on the countdown to 1,000, which... By Stuart's math, and he doesn't even know he did the math, will come next June. Okay. Interesting. And of course, we are back at Stephen King, uh, heavily requested. Some listeners never wanted us to get off of that track. We have reached the publication of Skeleton Crew, his 1985 short story collection. And is it bad that it took me this long in my life to realize Night Shift, Skeleton Crew, they're both about shitty job shifts? (laughs) Yeah, I I can see that. Yes. (laughs) Like, the skeleton crew usually works the night shift. Mm -hmm. The difference is, Night Shift had 20 short stories in it, and half of them became movies, TV shows, sometimes franchises. I mean, they gave us Children of the Corn, sometimes they come back, Lawnmower Man, Mangler, Graveyard Shift, so many movies. Skeleton crew? Well, we got the movie this week and the one next week out of 22 short stories. Uh-oh. We have already covered one before. If you remember Creepshow 2, that middle section had a oil slick that attacked people on a raft. That short story was in Skeleton Crew. It did also get some television. Next week's movie was also a Twilight Zone episode. And I remember watching Word Processor for the Gods on Tales from the Dark Side. Is that a sequel to Lawnmower Man? No, but remember, his Lawnmower Man was just about a naked guy who ate blades of grass. That's true. They had to cyber it up for the big screen. (laughs) This was, have you seen the Amazing Stories episode with the remote control and Gary Coleman or the movie Click? With Adam Sandler. Imagine that, but it's a word processor where you can just delete things out of life and write new things into life. Doesn't sound scarier than Click. (laughs) So why is that? Why do we only have two movies from a 22 short story collection? I'm going to bet two things. One, Stephen King gave away the rights, right? Like, there's a lot of adaptations. They're just the dollar babies. If you want to send him a dollar, he'll let you go and film any of those stories, and they have been done millions of times. And maybe that has devalued some of the stories. 
I don't think so, because if you get a dollar baby, you are given non-exclusive rights. So if somebody comes along with a real check, they're going to get it as well. And dollar babies, I have hunted far and wide for things like the Children of the Corn dollar baby remake and things. Those are part of the contract is you are not allowed to digitally distribute this. You're not allowed to profit from it. You're allowed to do it as an assignment for a class and at most show it at places where you are yourself. And that is it. So I don't see how any studio would see something like the jaunt as a dollar baby and feel like that has usurped any possibility we have at a franchise, my theory would be Skeleton Crew came out in 1985. And if you think about it, that's when a lot of the Stephen King adaptations weren't doing so well and when Dino De Laurentiis had kind of taken over the Stephen King empire. We were a year before Maximum Overdrive. I just think that because of Carrie and The Shining, Stephen King was so hot and he had so little to pick from by the time of the early 80s when they were raping Night Shift. But now, the year after this, he's going to put out four novels in one year, including It. There's plenty more King to choose from that is more iconic, less esoteric, and at the time when this would have been hot, King himself was not. Yeah, I'll jump in on that. I didn't really like Skeleton Crew. I got it, (laughs) and I was hyped for King, but I don't feel like it's his best collection of stories. I really remember relishing reading each individual story in Night Shift. I was a little bit younger, but it was my intro into that kind of horror. Skeleton Crew felt like stuff that was kind of picked over. And I do think because he's so influenced by Poe and by Lovecraft, which Mm -hmm. are authors that are not easy to film and don't really have good movie adaptations of their work because they are so literary. The wordplay is so ambiguous. Stuart Gordon adaptations aside. Yeah, I I agree. And those are very loose (laughs) and not all good. But yeah, two of them I like. My point is that I do think that there wasn't much to choose from. But there were two stories I did love in Skeleton Crew. And one of them was on the cover, The Monkey. It was all about that wind-up toy that it would bash the symbols every time somebody was going to die. I can't believe they never made that one into a movie. And The Mist. Everyone loved The Mist. It feels like they made the monkey story, but it was an episode of Friday the 13th, the series. Remember they had the Clinton monkey in the opening credits of Friday the 13th, the series? I felt like that was a reference to this. Not to mention Monkey Shines. I was so disappointed when I finally saw that George Romero movie. I knew that he and King had worked together on Creepshow and figured that must be an adaptation of that story and (laughs) totally different monkey. Not as cool at all. And you mentioned the monkey on the cover. I do remember middle school and things, everybody was reading Stephen King. I'd go into school and it would just be like a pod people mentality. You'd see the same paperback pulled out by a bunch of people, most of whom weren't even known for reading. Like the jocks would be bringing out Stephen King short story things. But when it was Night Shift, it was that hand and everything. It was all weird. It was a wrapped hand, but a bunch of eyes poking out from underneath them. Yes, it's very memorable to me, that cover. And this is a toy monkey. It just isn't quite as freaky. I thought he was plenty freaky. And again, I thought that he would make it to the screen. The Mist, though, that was the longest story in the whole collection. And the first story, and the one that, if you remember any of the 22, it's going to be The Mist. It was an immediate hit. It was first published in 1980 in a 
collection as his short story works. I used to believe King just wrote short stories and published them as books, but no, every one just about was published somewhere before. The Mist would end up being published as its own novel, and well it should be as it's 200 pages long. Most authors call that a novel. That's in a short story collection and 200 page... (laughs) Stephen King's, like, 200 pages, that is short. (laughs) It is for him. I I agree with that. (laughs) And is it true that this was originally called The Fog, but because it came out the same year as John Carpenter's Fog, they changed it to The Mist? I had to look into this because I had a problem with this title being The Mist from the very first time I read it. And I actually looked it up. What is the difference between mist and fog? Less thick. I mean, fog is spookier because it's harder to see through it. Yeah, to me... When I say it's misting outside, it doesn't mean it's hard to see. It means tiny droplets of moisture are misting. Very light precipitation. Well, a mist is a fog where you have visibility above a mile and a half. So you're never going to be like out in the mist. Like, I can't see anything. You're going to be like, I can see a mile and a half at a minimum in the mist. Mm -hmm. Those spiders and birds have no cover. None. So this should be the fog, then. This should be the fog. I have done a lot of research into why this isn't the fog. I can't find anything specific, but I did find two things when I started searching. The first, according to an unsighted reference in Wikipedia. No oh boy. This was called The Fog and then changed its name to The Mist. I think that's where I got that. You know, like that's the equivalent of an urban myth. But yeah, that's where I think I heard it. I mean, it's not hard to go there when I my wife asked me, oh, what do you got to watch? What are you reviewing this week? I said The Mist. She's like, oh, that bad John Carpenter movie with the pirates and the fog? I'm like, no, that's The Fog. This is The <laughs> Mist, Stephen King. I, I think, yeah, once that movie comes out, your mind just goes there. Well, keep in mind, Stephen King also devours books. I mean, he reads at the speed that Jay Leno ate Doritos in the 80s. Well, in 1975, James Herbert wrote a novel called The Fog. James Herbert's a pretty well-known novelist, more so back then than now. And more so for dunes than for fogs, but yeah, okay. No, James Herbert, not Frank Herbert, a horror writer, a Brit. Oh, okay. And his book, The Fog, was about a fog that drove victims insane when they came in contact with it. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't doubt that Stephen King may have been aware of this book, The Fog, from 1975, and The Mist was published in late 1980 in a compilation. So it was written probably in 78, 79. He would have known that, but maybe he did write a short story called The Fog. And then The Fog, the movie, comes out February 1st, 1980. Yep, we covered it. And he has to go, oh shit. Let me change the name of that to The Mist and go back and, using his word processor of the gods, change the word fog to mist in a few places. Fog is still there in many other places. (laughs) He didn't do a find and replace for all the instances of the fog. No. You know, that is a danger. I I hear that all the time for people that write fiction. You fear reading fiction because whether you intend to or not, you end up co-opting ideas. You think you have original thoughts and you're just remembering things that hit you and struck you uh, as really cool when you were reading somebody else's work. And I imagine that is exacerbated when you're doing loads of drugs and drinking two or three six-packs a night. Yeah, and writing a lot too. I mean, this is one story of what, a hundred King probably published that year. 
So yes, I can't find anything King said in all the interviews I've read about calling it the fog. We know that he and Carpenter would work together a couple years later on Christine. So were there conversations there? Somehow he named it the mist, even though that's a shitty name for this because it's about a fog. Right. I mean, we got fog. We got mist. I'm looking forward to writing the next three ripoffs. I've, I've already got them. The Haze, The Smog, and The Dew. Mm. It's a trilogy of terror. The Dew? That one's going to be rough. I'm going to predict you're going to have trouble on that. But, I mean, again, what a great... I mean, I said it when we reviewed John Carpenter's movie. Like, what a great apparition of evil. I mean, I love the idea of a sentient evil fog and what it could contain. And, yeah, I loved the story when I read it. And I always wanted to see it adapted as a movie. And it was always in development. From when I was reading Fangoria in the 80s all the way to Ain't It Cool News in the 90s and 2000s, there was always something happening with that property. Here's what I find very strange. Frank Darabont. We've talked about him. Go back and listen to our Night Shift Dollar Baby reviews. This is the guy who did The Woman in the Room. Mm -hmm. And then Shawshank, right? Shawshank. And then before this movie also, we have yet to cover it because it hasn't been published yet. And we're going by how King wrote it. But The Green Mile. He's doing the sappy Tom Hanks kind of films that Stephen King wrote. But apparently when he was doing Shawshank Redemption... He'd been working on Nightmare on Elm Street 3 and some other things, and he's like, I really need to just direct a film of my own. And he's sitting there, like, back and forth, Shawshank Redemption, The Mist. Shawshank Redemption, The Mist. I'm like, those are two wildly different things, but Darabont did love horror, and... I mean, that's why he was working on Nightmare on Elm Street 3. He'd go on to create the TV series for The Walking Dead. And The Mist was one he always wanted to adapt. And he told King this. And King held the rights for him. Other studios came and were like, we want to buy the rights to The Mist. And even though, as I understand it, no money had changed hands, King... I mean, Darabont had gotten him Oscar nominations and things. He had taken the King name. Only Rob Reiner had previously created such prestigious Stephen King adaptations. And he liked Darabont. I mean, that was the deal they cut for Shawshank, was that nobody else was going to direct that but him. Partly because I don't think anybody was asking to. But yeah, so I get that. He had a relationship, and he was a man that made King's name respectable with critics that found his B-movie plots and, and horror work to be inferior. So yeah, what would that look like for him to take one of those B stories and try to elevate it? I also think it helps that he did make a movie all on his own called The Majestic, and it did not earn him the Oscars that he hoped. So I think he felt like his reputation had been such that going back to King, any King, would probably be a good idea. The Majestic, that was the Jim Carrey movie theater one. I haven't seen it, and I haven't seen The Green Mile, but just based on the previews, I don't imagine I would like anything about either. And, you know, it should also be said that, yes, I mean, movies are greenlit for a reason. They usually, you know, rights become available. Sometimes the themes become topical. We were kind of obsessed with zombies and apocalypses into the world scenarios after 9-11. It did seem like, yeah, we, we saw a resurgence of specifically zombie, and I know this isn't zombie, but there's something about the mist that has always felt like George Romero's Night of the Living Dead. Even going to post 9-11, you see the videos, you know, in the 
towers come down and just all the rubble and all the debris that's kicked up into the air and you think of a fog you think of a mist and you know what is inside that what horrors came because of that and yeah I remember seeing this not when it was out in theaters but a few years later when it was on TV I watched it and all I could think I'm like oh boy someone's really doing a 9-11 metaphor with this film yeah I think that's why it came back I think that a whole bunch of people gathered into a single location afraid to go out because of nebulous fears of what may happen to them. I mean, there's religious fanatics here. Yeah, it came maybe a couple years late for the 9-11 hype, but by the time Darabont got around to finishing the script, getting financing, I could see what inspired him. Yeah, everyone wanted in on this thing. And again, it was sort of the film that everyone wanted to see that hadn't been adapted by Stephen King. I do feel like that was a golden nugget in his bibliography that people wanted to see come to life. I did. I wanted to see it when it came out. I think it was Thanksgiving weekend, 2007. But the reviews were so bad. And I ended up not going and it quickly disappeared from theaters And I ended up renting it a year later. I remember I saw this opening weekend. I was excited for it for two reasons. You didn't read the reviews. No, I didn't. I did not read any reviews, but Stephen King and Frank Darabont, I loved Shawshank, and I've seen Green Mile, and I remembered liking it. Yeah, that was the deal breaker. I gotta imagine that was a big part of the hype for this, is like, from the maker of Shawshank and Green Mile. I'm sure that was the marketing. Keep in mind, also a real turnoff for me, as someone that called Shawshank Redemption (laughs) the worst movie ever made, even though it's not. And then Thomas Jane, the Punisher in the lead, and I realized that that Punisher film wasn't spectacular, but I liked Thomas Jane in it, and ever since that movie, I've kind of been more inclined to watch things with him in it than not. I mean, I don't think I would have watched Hung if he hadn't been in the lead or somebody of that caliber. Here's the thing with Thomas Jane, because I kind of agree with you, Arnie. I, You know, I kind of like that movie. I recommended that Punisher film that he was in, and because of that, I'm like, oh, it's Thomas Jane. That's a name I know, and I don't think I like anything else he's been in. Like, he just never caught on, is my feeling. Deep Blue Sea, Boogie Nights. I don't remember him in Boogie Nights. We'll have to... I'll catch up on that when we do that one. Yeah, very, very soon. I mean, he shows up in Scott Pilgrim. It's a funny little role, but it's not like a, oh, must see Thomas Jane. No, that was just fun because of how many comic book actors they could shove into that film. I don't think he has a strong identity with the public. I don't feel like people know what a Thomas Jane movie is. He kind of walks a, a fine line between an action hero and a dramatic actor. He could probably do both. Kind of not unlike Nicolas Cage for Nicolas Cage went too far and never came back. I feel like Thomas Jane can do wry humor, though. Like, his action or his drama isn't quite fully dramatic, and so a lot of times I get, like, a winking humor out of him. Well, when you're in Deep Blue Sea, there's a winking humor everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I agree. I feel like that's when he works best. I guess at some point we'll do, I don't know what it's called, 1924 or whatever, some Netflix movie that's based off Stephen King that Thomas Jane also starred in. And yeah, when he's just doing straight drama, he doesn't have that leading man quality for just a straight drama for me. I, I, I just don't see him being a huge draw for that kind of thing. So I'll ask, which version of this film did you watch? In theaters, of course, I watched the color theatrical release, but Darabont did release onto Blu-ray. He said if there's a director's cut, it's what's on this two-disc Blu-ray where you get the theatrical movie 
and you get his black and white edition because you said Night of the Living Dead, Stuart, and that was something King had in mind writing the story. He wanted to call back to 50s creature features and that kind of black and white horror. And Darabon, he's like, no studio is going to let me make a black and white film. And he really, I think, went for it. He was inspired by the Coen brothers, the man who wasn't there, shot in color, but done in black and white. And he shaved a few seconds off of some scenes, did a really nice high contrast black and white transfer, and put that out. So I've watched both cuts. So it's a little bit shorter, you're saying? Seconds, like 16 seconds shorter. But there's no new scenes or anything. There's nothing added. No. Yeah, I just watched the regular theatrical color version for this one, the one that I saw again a few years after this film came out. Yeah, I never knew this was a thing, but this is a trend. Mad Max Fury Road apparently does this. Logan did it. I missed all of them. I haven't seen a single one, and I, I, I kind of like the idea. Theoretically, I think that if the movie has some visual problems preview of my thoughts the mist does i got questions when we get to certain scenes if they work better in black and white i do think that black and white would help soften the seams that i see in the digital work yeah i think darabont was kind of ahead of the curve though i always felt logan was writing no pun intended on mad max's tail because mad max was able to get away with that black and chrome edition but Yeah, Darabont did this far earlier, and I'll say right now, I actually, and I didn't think this would be the case, I prefer the black and white version. I was nervous going in, because it has a Frank Darabont introduction. And in the 90s, I had this video editing machine that was like a video toaster junior, and I could take VHS and dub it through this machine, and I could up the contrast, and I could apply basic filters, one of which was black and white. But It was always more of a green color, and that's how Frank Darabont looked in this opening, was this, it was a hazy green, black and white kind of thing. There was no color, but it certainly was low contrast, looked like shitty video, and I'm like, oh god, I'm gonna be watching this ugly-ass green movie for the next two hours. No, they really did a lot of timing with the contrast and upped it, and I noticed things about the movie in black and white that I never noticed in color. Like, there's really not a whole lot of musical score going on here. There's a couple anachronisms when they mention Photoshop in a black and white film that (laughs) this is otherwise a fairly timeless movie. It worked in black and white. That grocery store looks like it's from the 60s. Yeah, I actually found myself getting into the black and white cut a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, I love the format. I Just to, you know, put it out there. I still, to this day, I mean, Roma was black and white. I see black and white movies that are currently made. But yeah, it's an auteur format. You have to be a super cool director. You have to be Steven Spielberg, Woody Allen. You have to be someone that can pull the strings and tell the studio people, you're the boss. And I guess... Yeah, it's easier to do that in home viewing than it is to put it out in theaters. So if I could have seen it in that way, I would have. But no, the first time I saw it and this time I saw it in its color version. You mentioned auteur. Frank Darabont, despite his successes, was not an auteur at that time. He was talking to Paramount about this film and they were going to give him a budget of $30 million dollars if he would change the ending that we will talk about. Mm -hmm. And he would not change the ending. He ended up going over to the Weinsteins, Dimension, you know, their horror branch, did this film on the cheap, $18 million. Oh, see, and I thought 30 was cheap, but 18. Yeah, he could have used that other 12 million. Oof. 
If you watch the behind the scenes, of which there are many on that two-disc edition, he shot this multiple cameras, running gun style, shooting 50 pages in three weeks because he had so little money. Very, very different than the type of languid pace he enjoyed on Shawshank and Green Mile. And I feel like the film reflects it. I actually didn't know that, but I could. I felt it in watching the movie. It looks cheap. It may look cheap, but I can't say that the haste of shooting really reflected in it. I, if anything, it gave people a bit more of a frantic feel that might fit the circumstance. Well, let's talk about it. Arnie, what is the circumstance in The Mist? Thomas Jane plays movie artist David Drayton. When a bad thunderstorm knocks a tree into his house and takes out his power, he takes his son Billy, played by Nathan Gamble, into town for supplies. Tagging along is David's antagonistic neighbor, Brent Norton, played by Andre Brower. While at the supermarket, a thick fog rolls into town and a local townie comes into the store shouting there are monsters in the mist. This is confirmed when store employee Norm, played by Chris the Shermanator Owen, goes outside to fix the generator and is attacked and killed by giant tentacles. Some military men in the store say the events may be tied to Project Arrowhead taking place at a nearby military research facility, possibly opening the door to a different dimension. Some of the store patrons don't believe in monsters, including Norton, and Norton leads a group who go outside to find help and are all killed by the monsters they didn't believe in. Aided by store employee Ollie, played by Toby Jones, David and some others start to shore up the store windows to protect themselves from the monsters outside. On David's side is a school teacher, Amanda Dumfries, played by Lori Holden, who is most often tasked with babysitting Billy. Also, there is Dan Miller, played by Jeffrey DeMunn, and Irene Repler, played by Frances Sternhagen. Religious zealot Mrs. Carmody, played by Marsha Gay Harden, believes this is the apocalypse as foretold in the Bible, and she gets a number of store shoppers on her side. Seeing David and his group as heretics, she cries for a sacrifice to appease the monsters outside. Her followers start to expel Billy and Amanda, so Ollie shoots and kills the cult leader. David and his group, now persona non grata among Carmody's followers, decide to try to make a run to his car and drive out of the mist. David, Billy, Amanda, Dan, and Irene are the only ones who survive the run to the car. David first goes back to his house to find it destroyed and his wife is dead. Then they try to drive out of the fog, but fail to when the car runs out of gas. Ollie's gun has four bullets left, so in a suicide pact, David first kills his son, then the other passengers. But there's no bullets for him, so he gets out of the car to let the monsters kill him, when the fog clears and the military come with several refugees, killing the monsters with flamethrowers. David screams in sadness, because if he had just waited two minutes, his son would still be alive. As credits roll. Not two minutes, ten seconds. Timing is everything. Now, I don't know how much you guys feel like you need an explanation for the events here. Darabont's script did start with a prologue that was Project Arrowhead and showing the army and showing the experiment go wrong and showing the origins of all of this. And his producer was like, do you really need this? It's going to be expensive. And so it got cut. Well, yeah, and this movie's already over two hours for some reason. <laughs> I don't need it. I was surprised when we do get an explanation. For me, it was enough just to see the military like rushing one way and you'll get some lines yeah, later on from some military guys. I'm fine. It's a weird mist where weird stuff's coming and we don't know why. We don't know what it is. To me, not having an origin for this kind of story, it makes it a little bit scarier. Yeah, again, I've mentioned Night of the Living Dead that seems 
to be where this is coming from. We never knew why the dead came back. There were theories coming on the radio. I'm comfortable with that. Like, all we know is that later some military guys suggest they opened a portal, which feels very Lovecraftian, but may not even be the real reason. And that is fine by me because the movie is not about closing a portal to a mist world. But in the real opening of the movie, we start with very little music and we're introduced to Drew Struzan. Yes, this was a shocker. I mean, I I remembered Thomas Jane was playing, I thought, a comic book artist, but a a painter. And then when we get a good look at his work here in the opening shot, it's John Carpenter's Thing poster, Pan's Labyrinth. So they're saying he is the person that painted that Thing poster? I was wondering, I'm like, is he just a fan of that painting or did he actually paint it? And I think Pennywise might be there, the the guy. Gunslinger from the Dark Tower is what he's working on at that time, so... I noticed that. And the Gunslinger is quite clearly Clint Eastwood, the man with no name there. I mean... Not Idris Elba? The face is slightly blurred, but that's Eastwood. Yes, and I mean, I think that was the template for what King wrote as well. But Drew Struzan did do the poster for Shawshank Redemption. He did the poster for many movies you know and love, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, any kind of fantasy movie from the 80s. He usually had a version. Back to the Future is a big one also. And Darabont just loved him. And so when he saw in King's work that this character was supposed to be an artist, he actually went to Drew Struzan's studio had the set designers take photos of it and recreate it here, and they commissioned the gunslinger that he's painting from Drew Struzan to do for this scene. What I would say is, it's kind of unfortunate that this is our main character. I mean, I feel like on the page it made sense because he was, was he a writer? He was a artist. He was a painter. He His career didn't really matter. It was told in first person and he wasn't thinking about his job a lot, but he did talk about painting. Yeah, it just felt like it was a proxy for Stephen King himself to put himself and his son in harm's way in the George Romero scenario. And what I would say is about Night of the Living Dead, one of the things people really hold on to is how important that main character was. He was a black man in a house full of white people in the 1960s, and that was a loaded situation that spoke to all kinds of subtext. Here, the fact that this guy is a fantasy illustrator doesn't seem to have anything to do with the rest of the movie. It could have been anyone. And honestly, maybe it would have been wiser to position the story around somebody else. Yeah, as I'm watching this, I'm like, okay, what does being an artist have to do with how he's going to solve this problem with monsters in the mist? Like, that's how movies typically work. And yeah, it doesn't seem to be a big deal in this film it's just oh he's a painter and moving on he is painting monsters and so maybe he's more willing to accept them that's the only thing that i can think of is that he might be more inclined to believe that what is in the mist is supernatural and he's probably seen the movies that they are discussing too that would inspire a lot of this but it's a storm first. Before anything else, what we get is a thunderstorm that brings down trees. And it's a tree that destroys his artist studio. It's a tree that destroys their boat dock. And it's a tree that destroys his neighbor's car. And so what prompted that storm? Are we to think that opening the dimension, that arrowhead, I mean, there's one plus one equal two is I guess what I'm asking. They'll look out on the lake and see a mist coming at them. Did that have anything to do with the storm that caused this havoc? I 
took it as all being related. Later on, there's going to be an earthquake, too. I just figured if that portal opened, if that is the story, yeah, it caused the storm and the mist and the earthquake and all that. In the prologue, it's actually the storm that caused the experiment to go wrong. Ah, I like that better, actually. Okay, so it was a natural disaster that, yes, undid a scientific experiment. Right, and, you know, a lightning strike like Frankenstein caused it. They couldn't pull the plug on the experiment, and the portal opened too wide. And so then the earthquake, the mist, all of that is caused by the dimensional opening that is left a little bit more vague in this one. When I read the story, I thought they were linked. I thought the mist was caused by the storm. That's what the people think when they see a mist the day after a big storm, is that it's a natural meteorological event, but... What's good about this, I would say, is that it motivates two neighbors that don't like each other to have to work together. And that's good tension. You want that. You definitely want to pit people that normally might drive in different vehicles to have to get on board the same car and then go into a supermarket, which is, yeah, a great place to meet all different types. Everyone pops into the supermarket that's going to be a great place to bring all people together. You guys live in tornado country, so you probably know when there's warnings and stuff, probably people flock to those stores and buy everything off the shelves. Here in California, you got an earthquake. Well, it's too late. The stores crumble down along with your house. But getting all these people into a grocery store, Americana, I'm thinking satire, and that's that would be my expectation is like, here's a little slice of America and what do they do when they panic? Like that feels like the story we should be getting. I, I think my big complaint is we're not going to get that story. I don't feel like this is satirical and looking at different aspects of America in this microcosm. No, I don't think it is. And King will do that from time to time in his fiction. But by and large, it appears to me that his stories are about kind of a salt of the earth blue-collar heroes, but trapping all of them in a grocery store, I couldn't help but think Dawn of the Dead, right? When they're trapped in a mall, here they're trapped in a grocery store. Yeah, they're all very panicky. I'm like, this is a great place to be trapped in this situation. You got all the food you need. And Dawn of the Dead was a satire. I do think King strives for that. I do think in all of his works, it may end up being subtext, it may not be the point of the story, but I do think that he is commenting on, yeah, everyday life in America and what we take for granted and the places that bring us together. And if you're going to restage Dawn of the Dead in a supermarket, that could be quite fun. Yeah, but maybe King does that. Do you feel Darabon's doing that? I don't get that in this film. And that that is one of the big shocks for me is that it's more or less just a creature feature. Like, I don't feel like I'm learning anything with all these characters that are stuck there. Oh, well, I definitely think that there are types meant to represent things in the political climate of 2007. Yes, some very broad types. Yes. But I don't think Darabont makes B-movies. I think he inflates things with importance. Here's what I will say, and this just as a general rule. I said it in The Thing from Another World when we covered that 1951 movie a long time ago. If the ratio of people to monster is really large, it's not scary. If there is 14 people in a room and one monster, 
not scary. <laughs> if there are 30 people in a supermarket and four bugs fly in, not scary. <laughs> I need to feel like there are more monsters than there are people. Now, of course, this movie is going to say, well, maybe the people are the monsters. But in general, I think you get what I'm going at. In order to create that suspense about the mist, I need to believe it's full of all these monsters that are going to get you at increasing rates. And here, there's very little attacks. Yeah, I totally agree, Stuart. And like my thing, again, great, you're in a supermarket, lots of food, but there's also like big panes of glass. I'm like, well, these monsters aren't just smashing through there. Like there's some invisible force field where they can't just penetrate the glass and come on through and eat people. It's bizarre. Let's go through it a little bit, but I'll agree off the bat. Too many people in this store, it often feels like spectators because so many of them are extras who will never be allowed to speak by guild rules and thus you have them in the background and every so often somebody will loop in silly lines. I do think it is overpopulated in that you can't do them justice. Yeah, it, it, great if you want to have 30 people, but we need to have an opener in which, like, 24 are dead. You know, like, <laughs> like look at aliens. Yeah, there were 30 Marines blowing in there, but there were 150 aliens. Like, you want those numbers to be so much more massive, and you do want to whittle down to the people that are important. And I think this movie does. I think it tells us, even in these opening shots, who's really important here. Obviously, we know that David and his son Bill are important. The fact that his lawyer neighbor, that he's gotten into some kind of legal skirmish, is not his friend, but they because his car is crushed, all right, I'll give you a ride. That's an important relationship here. The fact that the clerk is the babysitter for Billy, we're going to make note of her as well. And then, of course, Oscar winner, Marsha Gay Harden. I know her from, yeah, Coen Brother movies and Pollock and prestige films. She makes a very dramatic entrance coming in as the word they use is unstable. She's the town unstable person who has a lot of judgment and is quick really early on as soon as they're hearing the air raid siren saying end times. They're all going to laugh at you. They're all going to laugh at you. I mean, come on. It's right there. This is the king trope of the crazy religious lady. They're in everything. Yeah, it's so broad. But you, you're saying that they're telling us who's important. There's like some blonde lady. I guess her name's Amanda. She ends up like just watching Billy most of the time. And I'm like, oh, do her and David have a thing going? They keep like giving each other eyes. I don't feel like she's very, I mean, yeah, she's going to get shot at the end. But I don't know if she does anything for this film. Well, here's what I would say. As I recall. And I read or reread The Mist about a year ago. It largely is faithful. Arnie, back me up on this. This is more or less exactly what you're going to get on the page, with the exception of her. She ends up having a physical relationship with the main character. And I think that the reason why she's important is that that sin gets the religious zealots really worked up against her. They want to kill her and make her one of the sacrifices when the story gets towards a conclusion. As far as plot beats go, this is very faithful, except for the end, which we'll talk about. But getting there, yeah, down to Norton and having his car crushed by a tree, the differences become as minor as the year and make of the car. You know, the character names are the same. The character beats are the same. The way that the aliens come in are the same. I feel this one does explain 
the portal a little bit more than King does. King just has some military guys who kill themselves and a lot of hypothesizing. Here we have the military people spilling the beans. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm talking minor degrees of difference here. Too many for me to really process as characters and not use for body count. I think they're all here to represent ideas. I do think that the writers were thinking about what was going on post-Iraq war and the way that we were polarized as a country between religion and the use of military force and who has the authority. I feel like that dialogue is tweaked here so that it feels topical, contemporary, and could speak to current times, even though this story was written in 1980. Well, the other thing to think about is the military caused the problem in this one. Again, it's left a bit more vague. King has never had any use for the military being a Vietnam protester. I was about to say it all stems from where he was born. And yeah, Vietnam shapes his belief about military power. But here, we're coming after a time when, if you look at it from certain points of view, 9-11 was a counterstrike to American imperialism. And so here, it's the military that really created the scenario that is the disaster and not the military defending us from the disaster. I'm sure it all goes back to Dick Cheney. He's responsible for all of it. <laughs> is who? Which one is he here? Again, I don't think that they're that representational. No. They're types, but... No. I think they would be, except they stuck to King's characterization by and large. And maybe you could make the case that there's always the same figures in any given scenario. If you're cynical enough, you might believe history repeats itself to the point that this would be the case a hundred years from now or a hundred years prior. Whatever conflict that you encounter, there will always be these types. And so, you know what? I'm with it. I want to just point out that it's a slow buildup. They take a good 25 minutes. I like the story, and so I'm more or less with most of the choices. I don't think all the performances are strong. I don't really like the visual look of this movie. You mentioned that it was done run and gun, and I'm like, yeah, I feel like I can see that in the sloppy cinematography and the washed out look of it I just don't care for, but I'm more or less on board. I think there's a lot of creepiness to the guy that comes running in with a bloody nose and the woman that wants an escort home, and no one knows exactly why, but they just don't think that they're going to step outside into the mist and let her go off on her own. I'll say I do like the cast here. It's a cast that when I saw this in theaters, I didn't know most of them, honestly. A lot of them I'd go on to know because Frank Darabont just raided this cast for The Walking Dead. He even asked Thomas Jane to play Rick Grimes in it. So, yeah, the woman I just mentioned was Carol, uh, Melissa McBride. Yeah, she had a long relationship on that show. Longer than me. I quit after two seasons on Walking Dead. And the blonde you mentioned, Jacob Laurie Holden, would go on to be on Walking Dead. So there's that. And then William Sadler, character actor who's been in all of Darabont's films, but Toby Jones, who really would make an impression on me with Captain America, Sam Witwer who nobody else knows. Yeah, I was going to say who? He was a voice of Starkiller in the Force Unleashed video games. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I can't really compliment anyone because there's no performance that I think is exceptional. And maybe that's the writing or just the way that it's put together, but they're all fine. But I don't want to highlight anyone as being good. Even Oscar winner Marsha Gay Harden is really laying it on thick with her, you know, I think she was directed that way. And I think it was written that way. I don't think that King is subtle when he wants to take on zealotry and religious hypocrisy. 
But as for the lady who wants to go home, Melissa McBride that you said, I do think people are a little bit too quick to just be like, I'm not going out there. There is a couple of people who are like, screw this, I'm getting to my car. But by and large, they're pretty quick to be like, well, we're just going to stay in this grocery store forever. I feel like everything is very quick. Like, there's going to be a cult in this movie, and they've been there like a day, I think. <laughs> like, everyone's temper flares up very quickly. And again, if this was more satirical, I could go with it. But Darabon's playing this for drama, and I'm just not buying how uh, these mood swings, how fast they are with everyone. Well, here's what you do. If you're trying to do a satire, you have to show us what it was like before. We have to see a normal day in these people's lives. We we have to see everyone going around and smiling and being kind and considerate so that when you rip the mask off and you see them being cruel to each other, we realize how surface all of that civility really is, how quickly we can lose our humanity. This movie will tell us in monologue again and again that that's what's happening in the dark, but you really have to show that. They really, they don't have the right beginning in order to demonstrate that. We would need to spend the whole beginning of the movie in the supermarket in order to feel that, and then disaster strikes. But I can say this, if I were in a supermarket and a guy runs in with a nosebleed and says, my friend just got sucked into the fog and it rolls in super fast and a guy that was standing by his truck screams and he never comes out and we don't hear his car start i'm not walking the lady home <laughs> i'm not i'm sorry i'm a jerk whatever but i am not walking her home and if you had you'd survive that was the irony here that we'll get to well if you went yeah in the first five minutes or something again that's the thing we'll never go back to this supermarket to see what happened to the cult people who stay there are no rules it's just like oh surprise if you left early you gotta go home oh surprise if you left late you, you shoot everyone and then the fog clear. like it's hard to get a grasp of what the stakes are in this film i'm going to not complain about this too much. I understand what you guys are saying, and I do feel that turns are made very quickly before justification. I really think, while I wouldn't walk the lady home, I also wouldn't be content to spend days and days in a supermarket without seeing a tentacle. And I like that the pacing of this movie gets us that tentacle in the first half hour. You mentioned, Jacob, that this is a uh, movie that's slightly over two hours i'd like to point out this is frank darabont's shortest film ever oh no kidding but for a creature feature 90 minutes come on unless you got some great script where it does become about the drama and the characters fine this isn't that movie though here's what i would say too we are creatures that look to authority and if the military guys aren't going out there i mean these are the guys that go over and i mean these are people that are going to ship out and go to iraq and if they're not eager to to go out there and face it and we saw all those jeeps and such going up the road they fired the air raid siren i mean i there's enough there to make you believe i'm going to wait and see what happens now the one thing that people would be doing that they can't i guess i don't see anyone pulling out a cell phone but it is the time period where they have it yeah i never see a cell phone in this they do say there's no phone signal maybe for landlines i guess that applies to cell phones but yeah you never see a cell phone in this film yeah i would think that everyone would be trying all the time like that that is the one thing that doesn't feel naturalistic about this is that I feel like people would be doing anything to get a signal. And other than that, all of this feels fairly plausible, fairly suspenseful until 
and it is like the balloon pops. It's filling with suspense. <laughs> I'm really into this movie. And 25 minutes in, the bag boy goes out there to clear the exhaust pipe from the generator. And we finally see a tentacle. And I go, oh, shit, that looks bad. <laughs> That's an $18 million budget tentacle right there. It's a killer. Arnie, does this look better in black and white? Better. <sighs> Still not good, though. Here's what black and white has going for it. The tone, the lighting, the shadowing, the shadings, and the texturing of the CGI here is all pretty poor. And a lot of that gets cleaned up when you put it in black and white. But also, there are times when you just know that item is not there. Flying creatures and things are just not there. Mm -hmm. I thought there was a conspiracy here because the rest of the creatures, I mean, none of this looks great, but I'm like, oh, the rest is acceptable. But these tentacles are so bad. I'm like, do they make these look so bad? So you just go with the rest of it. It's a killer, though. I, it's, I would spend all of my money making the first thing we see the best thing we see because and instantly I'm not afraid for the rest of this movie. I am not afraid of what's in that mist or fog or whatever you want to call it because it looks bad. I'll give the actors this. They do a good job of selling it. I mean, when we see the tentacles come in, it's because the power generator needs to be cleared and we've got a couple of people who feel like they need to go out and do this, even though they don't need the power generator. You've got Ollie and David standing there like, we have power in the main building. We're fine. Okay, that's what I thought because everything looked very bright. So I'm like, why this big debate over the generator? It looks like you have lights. I was confused. Yeah. Yeah, I'm like, are these just continuity flubs? What is going on? No, it was, they felt like they needed to be in control and doing something. And so we get... The poor bag boy here, Norm, Chris Owen, who American Pie is probably what anybody knows him from. He's going to go out there and prove himself a man by clearing the vent of whatever is in it for the generator. Said no bag boy ever, by the way. No bag boy has ever said, I'm going to be a man cleaning out the exhaust pipe of the generator in the fog. No, and... In fact, bag boys would probably be like, this is outside my pay. Yes. <laughs> you do this. You're the owner. Correct. I'm sitting on my ass. And David tries to warn him. Oh, there's something out there. I saw something banging on these aluminum doors. They're giant monsters out. I don't know why they couldn't just break these doors down, why this little tin thing is able to keep them out. But I guess whatever. I will go with that. I will go with the idea that the creatures are either ambivalent about breaking in or haven't quite figured out how much of a meal is inside should they break through the glass or the back doors. I'll give it that both sides don't know what the other is holding. And so it'll be a while before we have all out chaos because you're right. There's nothing very protective about those steel doors. They look pretty flimsy compared to the tentacles and certainly the glass up front. I get what you're saying, Jacob. That has never bothered me. The fact that they don't break through the glass, they're going to, work on that later on here that there's this door they're instinctive animals you know they may have the ability if they really tried to get through but then again we're going to see some of them at the end are so large that we probably don't even matter to them why this tentacle happens to be there to feed on norm or whatever it's going to do is 
It's just a good action scene. Mm, it's not good action. <laughs> yeah, let's correct that word. It's an action scene. And it's needed because at this point we want to we want to know what a threat is, but again, to me this is the deal breaker. This movie, the arrow has flipped, it will never turn up. This has gone red. See, and here I'm still on the line. I actually like the way the tentacle comes in and kind of rips apart the bag boy. That shot where he's wrapped up and and making a grimace as he's pulled away is really, really unconvincing. I went with that, but what I'm liking more is the human drama between the guys with David saying, don't go out there, and you've got Jim and Dan saying that they didn't understand what he meant. It's the human drama that works for me more than the tentacles, but I like the tentacle attack. I don't feel like much of the next half hour of drama is any good at all. And in fact, the problem is because there's so many characters that we just hear everyone carping and nothing really seems to be happening. It's a lot of complaining of, oh, I hurt. Oh, I'm scared. Oh, I don't know what to do. But, you know, they put some dog food in front of the windows. But really, for about 30 minutes, it is really like watching paint dry. You're hitting my points here now, is I enjoy the first 30 through the tentacle attack, but then we're going to get into some real logical fallacies such as, and this is in King's original story, but I kind of hinted at it in my plot summary. After this, they're going to try to recruit people in the store to be in on the knowledge. And they go to Norton, who, again, David and Norton have had their arguments in the past, but they seem to be getting along better now. Instantly, Norton's like, oh, I'm from out of town. You're going to make fun of me because... You're, you're just bringing me back there to laugh at me if I believe there's a tentacle. I'm like, that's what I'm saying. Walk 10 yards into the back room and look to see if there's a tentacle. Problem solved. That's scientific proof if it's there or not. Like, everything gets just escalated so very quickly and so extreme. And indeed, if he doesn't believe it, then you immediately leave. The only thing holding him there is that he doesn't have a vehicle, right? He needs David to drive him home. <laughs> yeah, but it does feel... Like, he's stuck in the middle where, oh, there's no tentacle. Oh, I'm not going to walk out the door. Later on, he'll finally put his money where his mouth is, walk out the door, and be instantly butchered. But during this argument, I'm like, if you're so believing there's nothing wrong out there, then I don't understand how you feel you're losing if you go in the stock room and see no tentacle, unless you really feel something they never go to, which is like David has a posse back there waiting to beat him up. You know, that would be the only reason not to go to the stock room. Yeah, I was waiting for them to maybe play on some racial tension because Norton is African-American and David's white. And, you know, again, if, if this is more satirical, you could do things with that. And I guess they don't want to do that. And I don't understand the motivations, why everyone is so extreme, so quickly, so right away. It makes a bad soap opera for me. The caliber of acting is better, but the dramatics are no more sophisticated than what we saw with the people at the truck stop in Maximum Overdrive. And that is too damn bad. <laughs> because you really do, if you're going to have a character go, I got the Old Testament right here, and I know that this is God's wrath, you got to position that just right. Because everyone knows she's crazy. To come to that position is going to take something major to happen. And the only thing that I can see dramatized is that some more people go out there, get killed, and then a few bugs come in and they don't sting the crazy lady. 
But that's not enough to believe like the crazy lady should sacrifice children. That's crazy still. Yeah, Mrs. Carmody, this crazy, I'm going to say Christian or at least biblical fanatic. This is what turned me off the first time I watched it. And really, I know that King has a chip on his shoulder. And when you you have someone like in Carrie with her mother, that just works better in isolation like that. The fact that this person's going to get followers and... I mean, she sounds like a crazy woman. And no, Carrie's mom didn't have a cult following her, believing all the weird stuff she said. This lady's going to get people to follow her, and it is just so out there. It makes it unbelievable for me. Because Muslims attacked us on 9-11, it did persuade some people that they needed to make a Christian forceful response, and it did polarize it in a religious way. And I think they want to tap into that, but they haven't done it well. Uh, There's no reason to believe that a majority of these people are going to get with stabbing children to save themselves from killer bugs. The correlation is not there. And they really try to pin it on that Jim character I mentioned, played by William Sadler. He's starting off a complete non-believer. There are no monsters. I'm going to go back there. But then once Norm the bag boy gets killed, Jim is the one that has the turnaround and suddenly is a disciple of Carmody. And Sadler doesn't play disciple as well as he plays Rube and villain. This was the naked villain in Die Hard 2. That's what I most associate him is the naked <laughs> Kung Fu in Die Hard 2 while making the planes crash into the tarmac. Or death in Bill and Ted's bogus journey. Either way, I think of him as being a threatening in and of itself. He actually looks weak by following this crazy lady. Are there characters we do like? I mean, it's kind of funny that the assistant manager is a crack marksman. We got Ollie and he's got a gun. I did laugh at that. And Toby Jones, it's because he is so unique looking. I'll put it that way. I like when someone stands out like that in the movie. So I'm kind of with him. And it is bizarre that he is like an ace shooter and a bag boy. It's what I remember about the Dawn of the Dead remake, too, was that, like, the underlings ended up knowing more about than their bosses, and they, they got to suddenly, you know, the whole social order changed because they had skills that upper management did not. Yeah, you say he's a bag boy. In the story, he's an assistant manager. I guess... He's more than a bag boy in this. He's some kind of boss. Yeah, I just, I never get the roles here very clearly other than Norm. I see who the checkout girls are, but Ollie is going to argue with another guy who's like, I'm going to write reports. And Ollie's like, well, you write your reports. So it's like Ollie's somewhere in middle management or something, but yet Ollie's the one who's really going to take the lead and the his boss character really fades away. But I like the people on David's side. Because they are on David's side or because they're interesting and charismatic? No, just because they seem more rational than the rest of these psychopaths. Right. That's not impressive. If they're just sane and not like (laughs) holding a tent revival, that doesn't make them cool. No, what I'm saying is I like the actors that are surrounding Thomas Jane in this. Amanda. Lori Holden, I do feel like she is a useful character because... 
the actor playing Billy can only be on set for a few hours a day, and so there are long stretches of this movie with no Billy in them, and so he gets handed from person Mm-mm. to person. No, there's this one woman specifically that's taking care of him, and even in a cutscene, she gets a monologue where she says, I'm so nervous, I need to have my focus on the child, but she ends up, like, overdosing on pills. She's the one that's taking care of Billy. Amanda... I get the sense that she is flirting with David. In the book, she slept with him. Mm -hmm. And I do feel like they might have considered that in an earlier draft and then realized either this movie's too long or we can't ask this much from our audience. I think it's the amount of the audience. Nobody ever mentioned that as being in any version of the script. And really, I think that would be a way to turn us against David. Because I'm, as it is, in both the book and this movie... Surprised David isn't more concerned about his wife. He tries a cell phone call. He tries a pay phone call. If it were me, I would be obsessed. I would be like the shaved haired lady at the beginning. Like, I need to get back to my wife and make sure she's okay at all costs. And he's really more interested in leading this group of people at the grocery store. He doesn't mention his wife that often. All this religious stuff comes up way too soon. If you think about it, yes, there's always the subplot of man is just as bad as the zombies. I mean, think of 28 Days Later, they end up at that military base and... Yeah, that's a good example of that. It it comes up like at the very end, all of a sudden, here's the big twist. Right. If Carmody kept her mouth closed for 90 minutes of this movie, and then all of a sudden, because she wasn't stung, and, you know, maybe something else, but you write her a moment, and there's only a few people left, then yes, okay, she's starting to develop this church that can be just as harmful. I'll go with that as part of a climax, but it feels like it comes up really early, like there's a bathroom scene where she's just rude to Amanda. She's always terrible, so like we're never asked to ever like her or to consider that she might have a point, and so she's just one-dimensional, and we just detest her every second she's on screen. That just seems like bad writing. Well, that's Stephen King's writing. I mean, this is coming straight from the book. Now, when I read the story for the first time, I was 12 years old, and I had problems with Carmody back then. I felt like she was too flat, her followers were too quick. I never liked that in the short story, it's written in the first person from David's point of view, he keeps calling them flat earthers and things, and I'm like, that's really dismissive of the fact that these are a dangerous group of people that you shouldn't piss off that well. But I like how Marsha Gay Harden is performing it. She is working for me almost as well as Piper Laurie as far as making me believe that she believes it. I don't like it. Yeah, but I don't believe that she's real in the situation. And here's the thing. Maybe King wrote it like this. When you're reading something, it's a different medium. Time goes by differently. Maybe it doesn't seem like such a quick change. I don't know. I haven't read the short story, but a constant discussion I have to have with my 12-year-old daughter because she loves reading. Then she's like, oh, I want to see the movie that this is based on. And she loves yelling fake news every time they change something. I'm like, no, like this is the lesson I keep trying to teach her. I'm like, this is a different medium. This is a different art form. You got to do things different. You can't do it like a book. What works for a book that works for a book doesn't always work for a film. So I don't want to blame King. I'm going to blame whoever wrote the screenplay and blame the director because they're making a movie. They're not doing a book. Things play out differently, even if it matches what's on the page. Uh, If you want to be one dimensional and everyone is one shrill note, then I just wanted to be more exciting and more quick. It takes 50 minutes 
for the neighbor to strap on the string and step outside. Are you kidding me? We should be getting close to the climax by that point, and we're not even halfway there. No, I don't feel we should be getting to the climax, but yeah, we are moving at too slow a pace. I do think that there are long portions of this movie that work better on the page. I think King is better at stringing out the tension on the page. And I think Darabont likes his drama. Like, he doesn't want to cut any of that and get to the good stuff. And there's just some portions of it where I feel like it's going on past its welcome, such as... After the neighbor goes out and bugs attack and we get an action scene again, and it feels like it's been a while since we've had one. Because we have. Yeah, because it's been well over an hour. There is an online theory I read that Carmody was right. There is like this conspiracy theory that because Carmody did not get stung, the bug lands right on her. And maybe it's that she was just very still and wasps don't sting people who stand still. Or maybe it's because of divinity, and later on she's going to say a couple people need to die, and when they die, the mist goes away. Some people think Carmody was right. And she might be. That's my conclusion at the end of this. We don't know. We never go back to this grocery store to see what happened to these people. Did they just get eaten eventually? We don't know who made the right decision here. So that is a problem for me. She might actually be right, but this movie doesn't have a point of view. Well, she has no reason to conclude that blood sacrifice is going to keep them away. <laughs> if the bug landed on her and she stabbed someone and it flew away, okay, look, you sacrifice and it leaves. I'm just saying she may still be alive at the end of this film when Billy's not. Well, here's the way I remember the novella ending was that they get away and rather than go with the twist that they do, they see the feet of God walking past and it does give it the sense that this is biblical, that this is our maker or some old world Lovecraftian maker coming through and cleaning house. And so, yes, there is a reason to believe that this is a spiritual apocalypse. But I don't know that these bugs are drawn to us because of our sin. What's said is they're drawn to us because of the lights. And we get this very lame, very sad fight scene where, yeah, like three bugs get in and we're supposed to think that it's absolute chaos. Well, they almost burn the place down because of those bugs. I enjoy the scene. I like, again, like you mentioned, Ollie is quite the sharpshooter. And I think it's more than three bugs get in. Maybe four. It's not many. But they're doing what they can for weapons with the burning mop and the pistol. I get what they're trying to do. I don't think they have enough money to do it. I mean, David's having fun with the flaming pinata one. And yeah, the little checkout guy gets to shoot the bug before it gets Billy. But by and large, the only thing that has happened that maybe people care about is the sweet checkout girl gets stung and she dies in the arms of their military crush that just three seconds before said, why don't we date? Yeah, that scene did not really impact me very much and i never liked the checkout girl once david's like can you watch my kid oh no i have to go help work for the store no watch the damn kid lady what are you gonna do you gotta make that minimum wage she doesn't even make an impression again too many characters and they're not important yeah what should happen in this moment is we should go from 30 people to six we should really clean house and make the middle portion about how scary the mist is because that's where I need to be feeling the fear for most of this movie. And then, okay, wow, I wasn't even expecting that humans could be as bad. But they're so wanting to 
spill the beans with the idea that Carmody and her clan are the real evil, that they've just already telegraphed that and made them a bigger problem than the bugs getting in the glass window. Yeah, I mean, this is a disaster film. It's a monster movie, but it's a disaster film. It is a disaster of a film, yes. Where... The disaster is you can't go outside, there's the mist there, there's things that will kill you. But in any disaster film, you have your human antagonism, and that's what's going on here. The part of the movie that I just, I kind of like the action scene that comes out of it, but I'm just wanting the movie to be faster, so I wish they'd cut it, is the trip to the pharmacy because one of the military guys got burned up when they were lighting bugs on fire and this guy has third degree burns you need him in like a burn ward at a hospital if you're going to save his life and give skin grafts but they're all like let's go get some oxycontin and give it to him because that's not gonna kill him well and he's gonna die anyway so this is a pointless trip i guess it's just to tell us that and again i'm guessing this is from the book because you're saying this is pretty faithful up until the end i'm not sure which came out first this or aliens the story came out long before aliens okay because we got chest bursters but the setup here is shot for shot james cameron and they yes. should be stoned with cans of peas or whatever you got in your hand when they pull this <laughs> shit about oh he's webbed up and it's popping out of his stomach fuck you i couldn't believe this i couldn't believe they just straight ripped off aliens again maybe that's in the book but the way it looks is how it's done in aliens no no it's not in like this you can have the situation in the book this is shot and framed like plagiarism but maybe cameron took some of it from reading stephen king cameron did not read the stephen king story and say i'm going to put it in a medium <laughs> shot and then pull the head up and their eyes are going to open and then their chest is going to wobble and ridley scott did a chest burster before yeah cameron did so i'm not going to say that oh yeah ideas come and go and who's to say no they really just blatantly <laughs> rip off alien because they know it's a really exciting movie and this movie is dull as crap and they need something to happen because because they're inching towards some kind of climax. And this stuff, again, the CGI is not good, and now it's derivative, and people are getting zapped in the face. Some guy gets his leg taken off. Who was that guy? Like I say, there's a lot of extras. I'm enjoying the acid-spitting webs. I just wish it looked more like they were really there. You mean like the acid blood from the aliens? The aliens don't spit acid. They have acid blood. That it is a major plot point. They stole this. I got that the webbed up, it did remind me of the scene from Aliens, which was an alien too. Let's not forget it was cut. I didn't notice that it was shot the same way, but I don't know Aliens as well as you do. So the conceit, sure, I knew it was the same. The shooting of it, I'd have to look at them to know. When you look at them side by side, you'll know. And it's shameful. And again, it just tells me Frank Darabont was not the guy for this. Okay, you want to get your sentimental Stephen King story out there? All right, give him the dramas. If you want a B-movie, anyone would be better. Michael Bay would be better. Anybody would make this thing move and give us the film that horror fans wanted. And does this whole pharmacy scene, again, if you're having a creature feature and these aliens and bugs or whatever, it feels like the danger should be building. And I don't feel that like, oh, okay, you guys went out into the mist. So of course you're going to come in contact with some more alien creatures. I feel like something should be 
pushing these characters to make some decisions. I guess it's finally the humans that are going to make them do those decisions because this cult grows and grows. But I just feel like, yeah, okay, maybe you could have some fun fighting some monsters, but that should also build the story up and build the danger up. And I don't ever feel like things are any more dangerous than when that first tentacle shows up. What I remember from the story was it took days, but it should be hours, maybe even real time. That would be fun. Like, what would it be just a second by second to go through? You, you could make it that fast and quick because it's kind of laughable that Thomas Jane keeps falling down on the floor and like sleeping for a day and like (laughs) oh yeah while you were asleep she got a whole cult going and you know they're gonna stab the military guy well I also think it would be even more ridiculous to believe this cult came together in two hours I can at least go with it in a day or so I'm saying downplay the cult in general and make it exciting. I don't care what you do. Make it exciting. This film is bloated and it's slow moving. And I can't believe that you can have a fog full of monsters and we're paying more attention to Marsha Gay Harden. And what motivates her to want to sacrifice the boy? Again, this feels very unmotivated to me. It's there to cause soap opera like drama. Oh, we not just need a human sacrifice. We need Billy. Here's one thing I would take away. She's someone that no one ever listened to. And so when she gets a taste of that power, I think she just likes it. The reason the first kill happens is because, well, they kind of, by their own admission, say the military was doing something. Two of the guys hang themselves in the back, and then the poor private guy, you know, he wasn't really up on the top secret information. I'm not sure what he knew. They were getting ready to go on leave. Yeah, I mean, he was going to go surfing or something. Instead, yeah, Marsha Gay Harden can talk them up into a lather, and the butcher can grab a knife and just stab the guy right there and kill him in the grocery store that she can wave these knives in front of children and basically the addiction to power. Suddenly a person that no one would listen to has command of the entire world such as it is that can be very, very dangerous. Power in the wrong hands. I don't get that from this movie. I get a little of it from the book, but in the book she was already known as the crazy lady before any of this happened. Yeah, I think you're right. I'm rewriting this because I don't like how one-dimensional it is. But there was a cutscene that really just sells that she thinks she's God's chosen one and she's nuts in the head. And it's when she's praying on the toilet. I mean, more so than what's in the film? Yeah, there was an extra couple minutes about how if you let me protect those who belong in heaven by punishing those who need to go to hell, then I will get a place by your side. So she'll be God's hand passing judgment. What is Billy's sin then? Is this just supposed to be like Isaac and Abraham and God told Abraham to sacrifice his son because... Yeah, she name checks them. And so that is, again, because they're pure. Because a sacrificial lamb, well, lambs are prayer. So it's not about getting rid of the sinners. Uh, You know what? It's not a really (laughs) well-articulated philosophy. And again, it's not really believable in the way that it's unfolding unless you're completely cynical and think that people in a grocery store with a couple days can turn into this. And that's the thing. I'm very cynical when it comes to religion. I am not this cynical enough to buy this character. It is a little much to believe that they'd all just go straight to let's kill a boy. Let's kill a child. I could get them killing someone they see as their enemy. This is life or death stakes. There's monsters outside trying to break in. 
They've seen prehistoric looking bugs come in. If somebody seems like a threat, I could see expelling them. A little boy and a woman, I think they're picking weak targets. And I don't think a lot of people, a lot of people can believe, oh, if we get that guy, maybe that will end the problem. But we kill the child. I just, I don't believe most people would be there. What I would have liked to have seen is more of her followers. I don't care why she's doing what she's doing, but show me that the followers truly believe they're so afraid for their life that they will do something as insane as murder a child because they think that will help them because it's their only hope. That's what I'm saying. That's where you get into more satirical aspects and exploring different parts of society and why people move the way they do and, and believe why what they believe. This film's not concerned with that, though. And it's all resolved relatively easily. I mean, Ollie just puts a bullet in it. Yeah, and I was surprised because if you kill a general, I would expect the troops to be even more angry. But this just... I guess because there's a gun, everybody's like, oh shit. Even before he shoots that, though, like he's, before he goes to the pharmacy, he says there's only like 10 bullets left, so he can't have that many at this point. Like, they could swarm. It seems like we should have chaos at this point. It seems like the whole glass should come down, and there's no more refuge. There's no more hiding anymore. They have no choice but to run out there. It would just be, again, my main concern at this point is movement, excitement, adrenaline, getting this story to its point faster by half an hour. I just feel like we should have a big blowout here. Maybe it's because of the budget. Maybe it's because it wasn't written that way. We just have a couple people running out into the, the fog and, yeah, a very unconvincing, what, giant ant or crab or something <laughs> it, it looked like the acclay from attack of the clones already gets it yeah you know here i feel like they're just killing people way too quickly a whole bunch of people leave five are going to survive in the car and the only one i really cared about was ollie and so the rest that die along the way and out of everyone who got in the car the old man i'm like whoa who's he where did he come from yeah, there's an old man and an old woman. I'm like, who, who are they? The old man was the first guy we saw. He came running with the bloody nose. Yeah, okay. he was the one that first knew that the fog was dangerous. And she was Billy's teacher, I believe. She was a school teacher. Yeah, she was a teacher. I don't know if she taught Billy, but she was an old school teacher. That actress has been in so much, including some other Stephen King stuff. So I know right. that actress. But this guy, I didn't recognize him because of the blood on the face. Yeah, basically we have an old couple and the new couple and the kid. And because, again, they framed it that these are the educated, rational people. Yay, we're happy that the good guys get away. Who cares what happens to all the uneducated rubes? The movie does it. It will never tell us if they are safe for just staying in the building. Well, Stephen King is pretty snobbish about that stuff. I mean, if you really think about it, he's really saying that there's some people deserve it because they're uneducated and they have uh, fundamentalist beliefs. Well, then show the bugs come in and eat them all. Well... The fundamentalist believes yes, but a lot of his protagonists are salt-of-the-earth people. But educated, college-educated, writers, artists, cultural people. If you are a truck driver, you are scumbag. If you have religion in your heart, then you are crazy. Yeah, he doesn't care for the religious, and he doesn't care for government and military, but I do think there's a hero trucker somewhere in his oeuvre. 
I mean, you'd have to dig deep is all I'm saying. I, I typically feel like writers are his heroes and this artist is as close to that. They're going to make a pilgrimage back to the house where, I mean, of course the wife's dead. I mean, who's surprised by that? Why would you think that she wouldn't be? Hope. I mean, I think that I would still go. Of I course, st- no, no, I'm not saying don't go. I'm just saying you go knowing very well the likelihood is not good that a woman with a house punctured by a tree is going to be able to defend herself against all of these things that thirty you watch 30 people get destroyed by. So here, let's talk about the controversial ending. Now, Jacob, you didn't read the story. Some of our listeners, I'm sure, haven't. The story ends with them getting to the car and driving away. We don't know what happens to them. We don't know what happens to the people in the grocery store. It's all very ambiguous. But before ever filming, Frank Darabont was like, well, that's not an ending I can go with. And he went back and forth and back and forth and came up with this ending where they go back to the house and see the wife dead. And then the ending where... They're out in the middle of the mist. They've not been able to drive out of it. And they run out of gas. Go siphon some (laughs) gas. There are cars on the road. Like, for these characters that are supposed to be so rational, like, they come to a very stupid conclusion. Very quickly. I'm I'm not going to disagree with this. You know that you're dead when you're out of gas. There's no getting out there with a hose and siphoning off glass. They went to a pharmacy to try to help a third-degree bird victim. I'm just saying, maybe the point is, oh, when you lose all rationality, that's when bad stuff happens, and here's their irrational moment. If I want to give this movie mm, some kind of help, maybe I could give it that, but I don't buy it. And I have found these people to be the rational ones in the movie. They move very quickly. Would you really be like, oh, I'm out of gas, let me instantly pull the trigger on my son. And here's the problem with the scene. First of all, I have innumerable problems with the scene, but the first, the biggest, is the way Darabont stages it. The way that they all have this look at each other where they just verbally agree to the suicide pact. They all nod quietly, yeah. And then the boy wakes up, looks at his dad pointing a gun at him, and then we cut to the outside. Boom. I mean, that is so obviously playing at our heartstrings that it backfires on Darabont. And I'm my cynicism is like, you asshole, what the fuck are you doing? I don't dislike this ending the way you guys are. I get why you do it. Honestly, let's go back to Night of the Living Dead. How did that film end? With an incredibly depressing irony. We had this hero, and he managed to stave off what seemed like an entire field full of zombies only to be lynched by a white militia and to be thrown on the fire. Well, he got shot. Yeah, but because he was mistaken for being the enemy. And that feels very, very similar to the irony of killing someone when it didn't have to be that way. I don't know. That that is so loaded with subtext because they did have an African-American hero in that film and a white mob. Here, it doesn't have subtext. It doesn't have any poignancy to me. It just feels like, what, what can we do to shock the audience? How can we do something grim? And I just don't buy it. I agree with you. The 68 movie hits harder because it plays into the cultural relevance of, well, of course, the white people would just assume the black guy was a zombie. And who knows? Maybe they didn't even care. They just killed him. And, you know, like, That just reflected how we thought about authority and the way they treated black people at that time. This moment is summed up as oops. 
And that's just not as good dramatically. It's not. It's not saying anything other than it's a very transparently dark moment that, okay, yes, maybe it circles back and becomes funny to some people. I mean, it's disturbing. It's still disturbing to think of a father having to put a bullet in his son. I don't laugh at it. Okay. When I was in the theater, I was stunned that they went this way and I was saddened that Darabont filmed it this way. If you want to do the Night of the Living Dead thing, have it be that the military kills them with the monsters or something, but to have the father pull the trigger on the son like this with the look on that boy's face, that's fine. Okay, but then... The second failure, Darabont's failure number one for not being able to stage this, I'm fine with it the way it's written so far. I'm fine with them committing suicide on paper. But seeing Thomas Jane, who is not exactly an actor of range, I've said I've liked him, but Thomas Jane cannot play this moment of I've just killed my son and I am enraged and crying and trying to blow my own head off. Every second that scene goes on, he looks worse, and I don't buy it. Ten seconds later, the mist clears, the army shows up, I guess. Here's the thing. I don't even buy this as ironic, because there are now monsters in the world. Like, they could still be killing people. (laughs) They could have still killed David and Billy. Who knows? That's my problem with this movie. It's just like, here's a bunch of stuff that happens, but we don't have a viewpoint, so we don't know if characters made right or wrong decisions. It's just, here you go. Marjorie and I saw this scene where the fog clears and the military comes up seconds after killing everybody, and we laugh. We're in a theater. We are laughing our ass off, and everybody around us is like, oh! And looking at us like we are preaching (laughs) Satan at church, but we couldn't hold in the gales of laughter at this wannabe M. Night twist ending that sucks so bad. I don't hate it the way you guys do. I agree. It's very transparent. And if it means anything, it reinforces the idea that the real monster is what people can do. When they're under stress and when they make choices under the gun, so to speak, quite literally in this case, yes, that they can be monstrous because the monsters, they actually make it look easy, right? Like the the mist is just blowing away and they've just, they're flamethrowing every giant spider they see along the road and they're going to win. Like we have no doubt that Arrowhead has got this all under control, so we should never have been afraid of the monsters, is really the message of this movie. I think that's unfortunate, because I really wanted to be scared of the mess. I'm really glad Darabont didn't get the ending he really wanted here. Oh, no. Which was one last zinger. We do see that the short-haired lady did escape. She got her kids. If you just bend the gentleman to accompany the lady, and followed whatever path she would have taken, you would have been saved by the military. Darabont was like, let's get every survivor and the cults and everybody from the grocery store and have them be on the next caravan. But the extras had all gone home and things. I would have liked that because, again, that would have been some kind of point of view that uh, maybe we should all just calm down a little bit and and try to be a little, even though those cult members weren't rational, but you know what I'm saying. But this, it wants to have its cake and eat its too. It wants to go all kinds of ways and have them all work. And all I got to say is, what's wrong with having a good old-fashioned monster movie where the monster's the monster? Like, I just wanted to be scared of what's in the dark and, like, to get this moralizing message about humanity was unneeded. 
Well, I'm just saying that this ending, as ridiculous as it is, and it just compounds ridiculousness after ridiculousness, when I see the executive producers' names come up, I'm like, this ending's the second worst thing Harvey Weinstein has ever done. Again, I'm not sure why you hate it this much. Okay, I think I've explained it. The poor acting, the poor staging, the stupid irony that they didn't hear a tank that was, what, a hundred yards behind them? It lacks everything. It lacks emotion, it lacks credibility, it lacks reason. Okay, I do not feel that that is different. The cold in the supermarket was more ridiculous to me than this moment. Eh, You framed a shot like aliens. I'm furious. This ridiculous ending, who cares? Come on. This ending is so much worse than cribbing Cameron. It's all bad, guys. There's no reason to fight over this. It's all bad. I really don't understand why, like, I still think this is kind of shocking, even though when the mist clears and you walk out of the movie theater, you go, well, that wasn't really about anything, was it? I mean, I get that it's disappointing as an ending, but you're, I mean, the second worst thing Harvey Weinstein has ever done is quite a damnation. I don't know how I can explain it better because it's not about killing the kid that makes this bad. It's about the fact that you kill the kid and then the military was literally a minute away. I mean, obviously that happens. I mean, obviously there have been moments in history where people through bad timing were planning something and then it didn't go that way. Stuart, here's the thing. What does it mean in this film? What does it mean? It doesn't mean anything. That's what upsets me. Not much. Uh, Not much. It means that the filmmakers wanted to leave you feeling bad. They did not want you to feel like it would all be okay. And a lot of time in Stephen King, there is a happy ending. I do feel like the kid does live. So that in that in its superficial, empty way, it is still shocking. But it is also revealing that the movie wasn't about half as what it preached to be about. Stephen King's novels have happier endings than his short stories. A lot of his short stories have everyone die. Yeah. And here's the thing. You could have had the mist clear and they're like, oh, we've made it. Let's get out of the car and look at our surroundings. And then a monster pops out and eats Billy. Like you could, there's a lot of things you could have done if you just wanted a shocking ending. I want it to mean something. And that, that is my frustration is there's not a lot of significance to this film. But again, that theory that Miss Carmody is right She wanted Billy and Amanda dead. The moment Billy and Amanda die, the mist goes away. So people are saying Carmody was right. I mean, okay. If that means something to you, again, I didn't want a better ending. I wanted a better middle. And King loves this ending. He said he wished he'd thought of it. If he had, this would have been the ending to the novella. He likes it more than his own. Well, there is no ending in the novella. Well, there's a last page that's... Yes, there are words in a period, but it leaves you... It was very clear he didn't know how to end it. If you've listened to my books and nachos, that's a theme that would span 44 years of his career and counting. Yeah, he's bad with the endings. But are we? Let's get to it. Jacob Stewart, do you recommend going out in the mist? Jacob. With this whole Stephen King retrospective, I've said I'm not a huge Stephen King fan. I've read a handful of his novels. I just don't really like his style, but I have a hard time blaming him for this one. I just feel like filmmakers just really blew it on this to write something for the screen, to give characters significance, to, you know, you put some people in this close together. I want it to mean something, especially because it feels like they want to say something about 9-11 and military action and all that, and then it all 
all just kind of falls flat. And you're right, Stuart, where is the scary stuff? Where is the cool action scenes? That stupid-looking tentacle at the beginning, that, that actually becomes one of my smallest problems with this film because I'm like oh, okay at least we got a little bit of action and we're not going to get a whole lot of exciting stuff for the rest of this and yeah do a creature feature make it 80 to 90 minutes shoot some uh, cool looking stop motion animated bugs and I'd be happy but this is so full of pomp and circumstance and it just feels like Darabon wants this to be way weightier than it is you got to watch something about fog or mist. Go with the fog. At least those pirates were kind of cool. This just doesn't earn, again, the drama, the weight, uh, the irony that it, it wants to sell you. It doesn't earn any of that. This is a not recommend. Stuart. It sounds like a very strong not recommend. I'm going to say we've seen much worse. That's why I didn't say very strong. <laughs> I'm, I'm tempering it. I, I want to start there. We've seen a lot worse than this, but we should still ask for more. We should still ask for better. The problem with this mist is that writer-director Frank Darabont has bloated a B-movie with self-importance without backing it up with any genuine scares. Nothing is scary here. It takes too long. It does too little. It takes two hours and does nothing with that. 90 minutes. Tops. And they should not get to brag that it's holding up a mirror to America when it presents characters this cartoonishly one-dimensional. And biggest problem of all, I've already said, too many damn people on the screen itself. The human-to-monster ratio is very important. If the people outweigh the bugs, you got a problem. Not to mention the subpar CGI. James Cameron, he had men in rubber suits. George Romero just had some shoestring gore to smear over some non-professional actors. They still got more mileage and more scares out of their work than this puny movie could. The myth should be claustrophobic, should be satirical, and it comes off as drab and dull. And yet, I'm going to say there's a general thrust of watchability to it. It is second tier king which means that it kind of ranks with the interesting professional failures. Movies like John Carpenter's Christine, both Pet Cemeteries, Toby Hooper's Salem's Lot miniseries, things where you're like, yeah, I watched it. It wasn't very good. It may have had one or two things that stood out, but, you know, you can always see the red arrow in this mist. Jacob, I don't need a monster movie to have a whole lot of meaning and symbolism. If it does, that helps quite a bit. I mean, again, we can go back to our discussion of, it's not a monster movie, but Nolan's The Dark Knight is a superhero movie with a lot of pretensions in a positive way. Not That word has a negative connotation, but it has a lot of meaning and really did hold a mirror up to America. But I don't need that out of every creature feature I ever watch. But don't you think Darabont's doing that with this? Oh, yeah, I think he's trying to, but I'm just saying that's not a bar that I'm setting. I, I'm just saying if the director sets it, you, he better pay off. No, not at all. What the director's vision is, is irrelevant to how I will enjoy a film. The question is, do I enjoy a film? If the director had zero aspirations towards something more and still delivered this exact film, I would feel the same way. What the director's intent is will not shade my arrow. And in this case, I felt like it was okay-ish for most of the movie. I did feel that it has moments where it drags, and... The special effects, it was 2007. It, this was not acceptable at that time. I mean, when, if, if we go back, if we ever, God help us, 
do like the Anaconda series or some of that early 90s CGI. You telling me Anaconda looks better than this? No, it looks about like this is what I'm saying. Okay. (laughs) But it came 10 years earlier. This has the effects of a movie from 96, 97. That's what I'm saying. In the 90s, you could pass it off as this is, it is what it is. In 10 years later, after episode three has created entirely realistic CGI environments. Yeah, this is inexcusably bad CGI, but I was really right on the fence. I really was until that ending and that ending just certainly tipped the scales. Now I remembered hating the ending when I saw it in theaters and I've never returned to this movie because of that coming back. I'm like, all right, I know what the ending is. Maybe I won't find it as funny. No, it's still knee slapping high fucking hysterical. And so I was on the fence. I thought this might get a mild recommend from me just because of decent performances and interesting staging. And I like the human versus human drama. But then that wasn't a cherry on top. That was a turd on top of the Sunday of an ending. So no, not recommend. But it's a weaker not recommend. So let me ask. If somebody now went back and fixed the digital effects and they looked great, could the movie be saved? I think I might. I think I could imagine it turning green if they shortened the runtime at the same time. Cut out a lot of Marsha Gay Harden. Cut the whole pharmacy out. No, make that stuff look good and cut Marsha Gay Harden down to nothing. Almost nothing. In fact, I don't even care if Miss Carmody is in the movie. And I could conceivably go with it. If they improve the CGI, you'd have to leave Carmody because A, it's integral to King's plot, and B, there's no other reason for them to leave the grocery store at the end if they're not pushed out. So you'd have to leave that stuff in. There's stuff that could be trimmed. If you trimmed 15 minutes, improve the effects, and there is a fan edit out there. Mm. There is a fan edit, but all they changed was the ending. They just gave it King's ending. They didn't fix those tentacles. Where they drove off into the mist at the end and then credits rolled. You do those three things. Oh, yeah. Easy green arrow. Okay. Well, there have been other adaptations. It should be said way back in the 80s, the first thing to ever hit screens hit computer screens. I wanted it. My dad never had a computer that was compatible with the games that came out for IBM. But have you guys played The Mist, the text adventure? No. I remember that box for The Mist. I remember the spider. I remember thinking, man, I want to play that game. I have played The Mist text game in the past. I had loaded it up one day i was going through what are called abandonware sites and i'm like they made a game on the mist and i think i played it for like two minutes i think i've mentioned during the video game retrospective series games like zork and things like that are endlessly frustrating to me because a lot of it is i didn't frame it right like literally in this game you find a box of salt and i say throw salt at a bug But I didn't type open the box first. So since I didn't open the box, the bug killed me. Hmm. Can you just lock yourself in the bathroom of the grocery store and wait it out? (laughs) No, because Carmody will kill you. This game is difficult as hell. I have uploaded to our YouTube channel this morning a 20-minute video of me losing this game. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) I will upload it where I win the game once I find a walkthrough. (laughs) You can watch me try to fumble my way through this game for 20 minutes and make wrong choices. But every time I do something, it counts as a move. And if I'm in that grocery store like 30 moves in, Carmody kills me. 
Does it have any graphics at all? Like, you know, just like even a still image? Even some text-based games would like throw you a, like a spire at the end to bite you or something. No, it has one at the loading screen, which looks just like the box cover mm-hmm. pixelated. It is 100% text, but they did a lot of work with this. Have you ever heard of author Raymond Benson? No. He's best known for some of the James Bond novels after Ian Fleming died, but he's done theater stuff. He's done fiction, nonfiction. They brought him in to write the game. And so it is like reading the book. Pages of text fill the screen. Unlike Zork, where it's just like you see a monster. This has embellished King's story. The only thing is you left Billy at home. So it's just you. Oh, you can't shoot him at the end? No, you don't kill Billy at the end. But it's just you trying to get out of there. And it really maps out and creates a story outside of the store that you'd never get in the short story at the time. It's a lot of reading. It really is. Page, it, like, you do an act, like, say, go east, and it fills your screen with text. And then it says more at the bottom. You hit space, and it fills the screen with text again. So it is an interactive novel. Mm, you're reading a lot. Which sometimes is frustrating when you really want to, like, you're fighting something. I'm like, no, just get me to it. Did I live or did I die? I don't want to read paragraphs. There's very few monsters to fight. And when you fight them, they're dead, and you can go back to those areas. Just like this movie. Mm, this sounds like I wouldn't enjoy it as much as I thought I would. I enjoy it, but I enjoyed it more for the story reasons. And I find having read the book helps a lot because I don't know how you're supposed to know to ask Ollie for a gun. Okay, but Ollie has a gun. If you didn't read the book, why would you ever think Ollie would have a gun? But Amanda doesn't appear to be in the game. Ollie's in the game. Ollie has a gun that you need to solve a puzzle of killing a bug. I much prefer the 90s adaptation of this book, though. Have you guys played Half-Life? I've heard of it. Half-Life is a first-person shooter that is really well done and is based unofficially off the mist. They actually were going to call the game Quiver based on, you know, Project Arrowhead. There's arrows, Quiver, Mm. but they ended up going with Half-Life, but it's about a bunch of scientists. You're one of the scientists involved in a project that opens an extra-dimensional portal and a whole bunch of monsters come through. And it's more of a survival horror game than a shooter like Doom, because like in the book, you don't just go in and shoot all the monsters. You've got to try to be strategic and figure out what the right thing to do is. Half-Life was a great game when it came out. Its graphics are as are more poorly dated than this movie's CGI, but Half-Life was a really good game that is completely in the spirit of The Mist. So I recommend that far more than the official game. Mm. And then Spike Television... The Network for Guys, I believe, was their uh, slogan. Is that still around? It was in 2017 when they put out a single season, 10 episodes of The Mist TV series. A whole 10 episodes? Is it all in the grocery store? I was excited for this, and I TiVo'd every episode. Not so excited that I actually found time to watch it because reviews (laughs) were dismal, but I TiVo'd every episode because here's what I was told. This is from the Weinstein Company right before the implosion, and I had read that it was in the same universe as the movie but not in the grocery store. So like they would line up somehow? Well, it could be that there could be a crossover later on. You know, people from the grocery store might encounter these people. 
So no David and Billy. No, no David, no Billy. Unfortunately, in the very first episode, there is a Miss Carmody who gets killed. And so I'm instantly like, wait a second. There, if that's what you're doing to Mrs. Carmody, unless they're, I don't know, sister-in-laws or something. But this is a drama show where one clump of people is in a mall and it's a girl trapped with the guy who she thinks date raped her the night before the mist came in. Oh, it's so it's a downer like the movie. <laughs> I saw the pilot when it premiered and I imed- immediately just thought this is a very unappealing Walking Dead ripoff. Like it was just about a bunch of bedraggled characters standing around with supposedly something horrific happening, but we would never get to it. It would never really, they didn't have the budget to really do it. I went back and I watched the first two episodes and then the finale. There are no bug monsters in the TV series. There are bug monsters, yes. But they are literal bugs. Right, right. That's what I mean. They're not monsters. There's bugs that will get on you. Their take is actually, I actually think it's kind of cool. If you're going to develop The Mist as a TV series, they're getting away from the idea that it's a giant icky thing that's going to bite your head off and more like you are the monster. I mean, that was the theme. If you ever saw George Romero's The Crazies, where a gas was released and it made everyone crazy, it was a pretty good original and it was a really good remake. That's what this mist was. I didn't know if they ever gave a reason for it being a chemical agent, but it just kind of made people crazy and they started following their darkest impulses. Great, go with that. But then when the show becomes, yeah, all about a he said, she said date rape scenario, was that to get young audiences? Because like it was like a CW show. Do young audiences love date rape? Well, I mean, it was about young characters. That was the storyline that was given all the floor of all these people trapped in the mall. It just seemed like everything was... And then it like ended up being her bisexual friend that wears makeup. Who is actually a transgendered man who is the performer. And so when you find out that this transgendered man is playing just a gay man and actually has a penis with which to rape a woman and is a psychotic killer, it's really off the rails. Now, I think they made the wrong TV series. I think they made James Herbert's The Fog and called it the Mist the TV series because when people get in the mist... It's not just that monsters can get you. They start seeing dead people and talking to ghosts and having visions and all this stuff. But the narrative is so screwed up. Like episode five, they decided to be lost. And, you know, you said The Walking Dead, Mm -hmm. but they decided they were lost for an episode and kept giving us flashbacks to before the mist. And so we could see where this person was doing pre-mist and how it was impacting them post-mist, but then they never went back to that. And there was the sheriff who was the father of the accused date rapist who became a religious zealot for like one episode. It is completely unappealing in three ways. First, it didn't live up to the promise that it was in the same universe as the movie, which is what I wanted. Although the movie's bad, so I'm okay with that. Yeah, I I just kept hoping Thomas Jane would show up. Two, it's not true to Stephen King because it's not his mist. There's really way too much going on with these bugs. And it's so episodic, but there's an episode where... One of the main characters, his brother, is in a hospital, and then it's going to get covered with leeches after surgery. Just, it's not scary monsters. The CGI is just as bad as this. But the third thing is, this is a cast of nobody I know, 
at all. Nobody I've seen before or will see again. Francis Conroy was featured in American Horror Story a lot, and Isaiah Whitlock is the man who coined shit on the wire. I'll always love him, but by and large, I agree. They seem like Canadians that have no hope of ever getting another gig. And the writing was abysmal. There's not a single character on it that I liked two episodes in. I watched all ten episodes. Mm -mm. I would have rather... If I could have exchanged somebody extracting a fingernail for each episode I didn't have to watch, I'd at least be missing four fingernails for this recording. Yeah, well, you never have to watch all of it. We were here to review the movie, but thanks for taking the bullet. I only watched the first episode again. I saw the second, and then I just skipped to the end. I'm like, well, how does this even leave off on a note? And of course, they were hoping to get picked up. They were heading to a new location for season two, and... Well, we'll never know. Yeah, it was a cliffhanger ending, and Spike became Paramount Network, and Paramount was like, if the ratings are good, we'll happily have the mist for season two, and the ratings weren't good. But you mentioned The Walking Dead. My real mystery out of all of this is, what happened to Frank Darabont? This was the last movie he ever directed. Now, it wasn't the smash, critical, or money hit of his previous two King adaptations, but it made money. It only cost $18 million. It made 58 worldwide, 26 in the States. You add in home media, which was a big market in 07. It made decent money for the Weinsteins, even though their accountants will flub those numbers. Well, I was shocked. I look at its Rotten Tomato score, and it was like in the 70s. Like, you wouldn't get that impression from listening to us. <laughs> no, and I remember the reviews I read were very poor. Again, that was a part of the reason why I didn't pay theater price. But I knew Darabont went and started The Walking Dead a few years after this. And it did take him several years, it turned out, to get The Walking Dead going. He was doing it for NBC, which I can't even imagine. But then NBC put it in turnaround, so he was developing it for Fox and then Turner... Finally, AMC. But what I remembered, because I was watching The Walking Dead back then, is Darabont was fired early into season two. Right. Yeah. My sense is he's difficult to work for. Yeah, I did a little bit of digging. And he's worked a little in television since. He is presently suing AMC for $300 million. Okay. That lawsuit was filed back in like 2013. The trial is next year. So the lawyers are the ones getting really rich off of this of seven years of litigation so far. But <laughs> AMC has released a number of emails saying they fired Darabont with cause for sending emails that say things like... Ray Charles could operate that camera better than the DP and compared one of the show's directors to someone who had suffered massive debilitating strokes and sending to, like, the director, fuck you all for giving me chest pains because of the staggering fucking incompetence, blindness to the important beats, and beyond arrogant lack of regard for what's written being exhibited on set every day. I deserve better than a heart attack because people are too stupid to read a script and understand the words. Maybe it's his scripts that are the problem. I mean, come on. I think that the main problem is just that. People don't like working for him. That's the thing that I heard when I lived in L.A. And, I, you know, I don't want to tell tales out of school. But, yeah, that was the sense that, uh, yeah, basically it wasn't fun to be on a set with him. And that sometimes adds up. I mean, you can be an asshole, but if, if you make great films or really money-making films, people will tolerate a lot. 
but I guess he hasn't been successful enough to earn that reputation. And and who knows? He may pop up again. He may be plotting something and and be the talk of the town next year. But or he may get his three hundred million in damages from AMC and just never work again. But yes, if you're Spielberg, you can be an asshole. I've said it before. I'll say it again. If you're anywhere in the 80 to 90% of people who work in Hollywood, you got to be nice because people are going to choose if they work with you again. And yeah, that seems to be, I watched every behind the scenes feature with Darabont and he was doing a lot of documentary filmmaking on this set. You know, he looked fun to work for in on this movie, but yeah, everything I hear about the walking dead is why he it hasn't worked again. Now, I always do say, I try when I know it, to bring in a fourth arrow. What does Stephen King think? Mm-hmm. Well, he loved the movie. I figured, with Darabout being his friend, that he was not going to be too uncomplimentary. And it follows his story. Why wouldn't he love most of it? He says he was genuinely frightened by oh. this adaptation of his novella. Come on. Well, this is all in the press, right? The, before the film came out. I, he always talks this stuff up. Maximum Overdrive, the, the scare the hell out of you. Come on. Yeah, he even did that with The Shining. I remember I read some interviews with him in 79 and 78, where he's like, I've seen some of the dailies, and oh my God, they're so scary. And then The Shining came out, and we all know about that. He also said, early on, he saw the pilot of the Miss TV show and thought it was, quote, pretty damn good. Yeah, because he's getting royal. He wants to promote it. For whatever reason, I yet again disagree with Mr. Stephen King. Maybe I'll, I'll take him at his word. Maybe he genuinely thought this stuff was great. I don't see it. Again, we could ask for better. His work deserves better treatment than what is usually brought to the screen. Well, we're going to maybe see that next week as a Stephen King horror story goes to Blumhouse, the horror studio for a movie I've never heard of that, Stuart, you insist is exists and is real, Mercy. Yep, it's not a dollar, baby. I checked nine times. It's got a 79-minute running length. And you should say Mercy 2014 because there's a bunch of movies called Mercy. Yes, I said to Marjorie, there's a Mercy that comes out every year. And she's like, so how many installments of the series are you doing? And I'm like, no, no, no. There's a movie named Mercy that comes out every year. And you have to look for the 2014 one based off the Skeleton Crew short story, Grandma. Right, the last movie to come out of that short story collection. And if you're looking for something different, we're back on Western Kicks. This Friday, back to Leone, Once Upon a Time in the West, a movie that I will call one of my absolute favorites. If you haven't joined us for this donation drive, join us at the silver level. I have been happily surprised just to give a preview of the conversations we've had with what Sergio Leone has done so far. I haven't been 100% happy, but... I've been surprised at how much I've enjoyed what I've seen so far, and I look forward to seeing these next two. Yep, all green arrows, and hopefully that will persist. If not with Stephen King, then maybe with Sergio Leone and Silver Level. So you can listen to us discuss that Friday. Next week, we'll be back with Mercy. Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. Listeners, thank you for joining us. And until next time, we're going to leave before people start drinking the Kool-Aid. David, there's nothing out there. Nothing in the midst. What if you're wrong? Then, I guess, 
Chuck would be on me. After all. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Well, we gave it a good shot. Nobody can say we didn't. Nope. Nobody can say that. Hear a full review of the original Stephen King source material at our sister podcast, booksandnachos.com. There, Arnie is reviewing every book and short story by King. You think educating children would be more of a priority in this country, but you'd be wrong. And also, come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review. Shut the fuck up and listen. In the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find many more reviews of Stephen King films, including Sometimes They Come Back, The Lawnmower Man, Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, Children of the Corn, and more. Listen, don't be scared. In our archives are also reviews of film series such as The Avengers, Star Trek, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Scream, Transformers, and RoboCop. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. I won't believe us. Have to. I'm not sure I believe it. I was here. Well, we so it was impossible. You know that, don't you? Anyway, what do we say? How do we convince them? Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. It appears we may have a problem of some magnitude here. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. You can also join the Now Playing Patron campaign through our Podbean site. Patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month, plus even more perks, including one where you can pick a movie for our hosts to review. Find the details on our website. Thank you, Wally. I wouldn't have shot it, Dave. Not if there'd been any other way. That's why I said thank you. Okay, then. Let's go! Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. I just don't think he's the bloodthirsty asshole you make him out to be. Associate produced by Jason. Son, you got brass balls. Now Playing is edited by Heath and Arnie. I'll call the studio. Phones get back up, see if they can extend my deadline. What choice do they have? Now Playing credit narration by Brock. With lies like these, I don't know how good it is, but I guess we'll have to make do. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. How was I supposed to know what you meant? You should have said what you meant better. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. You want me to report to you? You want to lose your job? Look, I'm going to be taking down names, starting with you. And I am prepared to file a police report. Fine, but write down your names. I will. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of Venganza Media Incorporated and may not be used without the expressed written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. You know what he's going to say. He's going to say, sue me, which I don't know, maybe we should. 
Now playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2019, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. I'm not discussing this any further. I know. mind Stephen King also devours books. I mean, he reads at the speed that Jay Leno ate Doritos in the 80s, if you remember when he did all those Doritos ads, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I got your reference. (laughs) (laughs) James Herbert's a pretty well-known novelist, more so back then than now. And more so for Dunes than for Fogs, but yeah, okay. James Herbert did Dune? Oh, Oh, yeah. I I thought it was Frank Herbert. No, this is James Herbert. Who the hell is James Herbert? James Herbert, more known for doing his later James Bond works after Ian Fleming died. He was the one that got that gig? Yeah. Are you sure? That's what I wrote down. I thought that was... James Herbert, English horror writer. His first two books, The Rats, The Fog. Um, Okay, I must have thought of somebody else. Yeah, it's not James Bond. I can't think of it. His name is escaping me, but that is not ringing that bell. No. But no, I'm talking about James Herbert, not Frank Herbert. Do we want to keep... I mean, it's kind of funny, because I think it's an obvious <laughs> All right, yeah, I'll do it. But as for what you say about... What's her name? Uh, wanted to go home. Um, she doesn't have a name. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever heard of author Raymond Benson? No. He's... Uh, author best known for some of the James Bond novels after Ian Fleming died. This is the guy I was thinking of. Oh, is this the guy <laughs> you were referencing mm. at the beginning? <laughs> I still don't know him. That's still not the one I'm thinking of. No, but you didn't have a computer that could do text? I, no, it never worked. <laughs> I'm telling you, I can't tell you. That doesn't seem like it'd be hard to be compatible with. There was something about IBM AT. I don't know what it was, but every time we got a game, I can't tell you how many times my hopes got crushed. I would pop in these discs, and it would not only would it freeze the computer sometimes, like we'd have to reinstall everything onto the like it had hurt, like it was a <laughs> virus. It would, it would have killed my home computer, and my dad did not want it. He was like... Computers are for work. They're not for games. So he would never get a system that was more friendly to these kinds of things. So I always just coveted computer stores and these boxes. And I'll back you up. I had an NEC APC3, which was an MS-DOS machine. But would you believe they actually advertised 28% IBM compatible. Oh, I remember when they tell you how what percentage was compatible. And then we installed for several hundred dollars <laughs> a SLE card, software library expander card that extended it to a nearly 80% compatible. Mm. So yes, I was also a victim of buying games that wouldn't work specifically star trek 5 the final frontier was a game i bought 
and could not play. And it finally got my godfather to be like, Arnie's kind of learning a lot about computers. Maybe he should have one that's not eight years old so he can do stuff and shaped my entire future by buying me an Amstrad with four megs of RAM. And 100% compatibility. Yes, it was 100% compatible, a 386. Ooh, a 386. I remember those. And the reason I bring up Star Trek V, it was published by Mindscape, who also made the Myst text game a few years earlier. 